Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. I was I was just about to say, what comes to mind when I say the word man-eater? Oh, here she comes. She's a man-eater. Now, was she actually a man-eater? Was she an out-of-control cannibal? In that, because that's kind of, kind of the vibe. I, I I hear that song and uh-huh. I picture kind of like Miami Vice type situation where they're hunting down this woman who is on the the loose and killing and eating men in kind of a, like a black widow cannibal fashion. And only two men, Hall and Oates, one yeah. mustached, can bring her down. Exactly, detectives Hall and Oates on the case. I think it was more like she's a gold digger. Hmm. She's going to run through all the men. But yeah, we could take the whole uh, skew on it that she was a flesh-eating woman yeah. rampaging around the social circles of humans. Okay. All right. I like that interpretation. Now, uh, for anyone who's thinking about turning off the podcast right now, let me assure you, this is primarily not an episode about cannibals. This is, uh, this is a, when we, when we say man eater, we're, we're bringing to mind the, the, the jungle man eater, the, uh, uh, the idea that there, you have animals out there that may turn man-eater, or animals that are in and of themselves man-eaters. Uh, and it's a, it's a term that carries a lot of weight, because as humans, we generally like to think that we are in a, a safe area, that we have uh, uh, not only reached the top of a food chain, but we have removed ourselves from the food chain entirely. We've, we've achieved liberation from, uh, from that uh, uh, particular structure. Yeah, we've talked about this before. Louis C.K. has a bit about how humans really take for granted the fact that we are out of the food chain. But as we read in the listener emails last week, there's one person who dared to ask the question, could you have a sudden bloodlust when it comes to humans? Could you get a taste of it and want more? Yeah, and and to what extent is that just sort of... uh you know, human self-obsession to think that we're just, yeah. we're so tasty. Like we're an, we're an off the menu item and we are so delicious <laughs> that if, uh, that if a tiger or a lion or a chimpanzee or, or any kind of creature that dabbles in meat eating at all were to get a taste of us, mm-hmm. then there is no way they could go back. They would just have to be man meat all the time. Cut it up for me. Put it on my plate. That's all I'm going to eat until you take me down in a hail of bullets. Wow. So you're saying, could there be some sort of sea change that all of a sudden put us on the menu? In other words, these animals wouldn't go into their restaurant and have some sort of code word in order to bring this delicacy of humans about. All of a sudden, we would just be on the menu all the time. We would be the other white meat. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that's what we're going to discuss here. There are situations where something does occur. Or a, or a few different things occur that f- that seem to flip a switch in a predator that make it go from uh, from just uh, its normal dietary practices to becoming a man eater to to preying on humans um, exclusively. But t- to what extent is it a thing? To what extent is it us overreacting? Because because man eating is a uh, it's it's such a, a loaded idea because it 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 just digs into our primal fears and into this uh, this situation of prey and predator that we again largely like to think that we have uh, achieved liberation from that we you know we're able to distance ourselves from predators we're mm-hmm. able to protect ourselves and we're generally really smart prey we are we're generally not a mostly. good prey animal <laughs> mostly mostly um, but but genuinely speaking we're an intelligent large creature that uh, that's not worth the effort of hunting 
But if we are in the wrong place at the wrong time, all of a sudden it becomes a very precarious event for us. Yes. So we should probably kick off by talking about shameless man-eaters. And I think that the best example of shameless man-eaters uh, is, uh, are the Nile crocodiles. Crocodile! Yeah. Yes. Now, you, you guys, these yes. guys, if we, if we had like a ring here in the right corner, you'd have a Nile crocodile weighing in at sometimes as large as 1,600 pounds and 20 feet long. Now, for, for everybody that resides outside of the United States, I'm talking about 730 kilograms and 6 meters long. Yeah, and these, uh, and basically sub-Saharan Africa is just lousy with these things. They, they, yeah. they're everywhere. And, uh, and they are indiscriminate in their diet. So, so there's not a situation of, oh, that, that crocodile, um, that, that Nile crocodile went man-eater. It developed a taste for human blood. No, the crocodile is game for whatever it can get its jaws around. And since, uh, uh, human beings often live in pr- close proximity with these creatures mm-hmm. because because the river is their habitat and the mm-hmm. river is life. If you are somehow hacking out uh, an existence for yourself, then you are depending on the river for water, for food, for laundry, to children play in the water, etc. The the chance is going to come up for um, a, a crocodile to snack on a human, and it's it's hard to put an exact number on this, but it's estimated that upwards of 200 people may die each year from Nile crocodile attacks. Yeah, so imagine yourself at the Nile River at the banks, you're washing your clothes, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you are pitted against this animal that is camouflaging itself in the water, effortlessly just wading right up to you undetected, and they have these incredibly fast reflexes, and, you know, surprise attacks are their purview. So you really don't have a chance in one of those situations. And you can see why just in the sub-Saharan Africa in, in the Nile that something up to 200 deaths a year occur because of these crocs. Now, could humans and crocodiles ever live in harmony? I mean, this is not an animal that uh, it is just uh, overflowing with intelligence and, uh, and social adaptability with, uh, with, with non-crocodile uh, species. Yeah, actually, um, if you look at the case of one place in Western Africa, it's called Bazul, where 100 Nile crocs reside, uh, along with humans, in what I would say is relative harmony, you can see that this community regards Nile crocs as sacred. Mm-hmm. And they think of these crocs as, as uh, having a link to survival and welfare in the seasons, right? Okay. So they routinely sacrifice chickens. To oh. these crocodiles. So in a way, it's a kind of a domestication, right? Because they're, they're giving them an animal. And they're keeping them fat enough and full enough that they're not going to be tempted as often by that, uh, that human snack that's washing its, its uh, clothes in the water. Yeah. And this has been going on since the 14th century. Mm-hmm. So, um, in some cases, as we'll discuss later on with other animals, there's this possibility that, um, not only this act going on and sort of routinizing it for the crocs, but maybe it's a learned behavior through generations of these crocs. You know, because the, what instantly ticks off of my, my mind when I think about that is I think about uh, alligators here in the United States. And what do they always tell you about alligators? Do not feed the alligators. Mm-hmm. Uh, because with other wild animals, you start feeding them, they start associating a human presence with food. Which is, is generally not a good idea. Cause again, one of the root reasons that uh, humans are so good at largely avoiding, uh, consumption by a predator mm-hmm. is that we keep our distance from them. Uh, we know not to go and mess with the bears and the bears by and large 
don't want to mess with the humans. But when you start uh, confusing the equation by having a, right. a gift of sacrificed chicken or a delicious uh, garbage can involved, then uh, it starts bringing these two species closer and closer. Yeah. And they're both very dangerous species in their own way. So when they, they meet, uh, it's, it, it might not be pretty. And the thing is, though, in in this area of Western Africa, you may not have the choice to keep your distance. So your water source is probably going to be the same as these crocs. So it would make sense that you would create this sort of symbiotic relationship with a croc. Now, I don't suggest that everybody here in the United States go out and start doing that (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, by and large, we have the ability to keep our distance. Uh, But, yeah, this is what you see when... when, uh, Two species are, are cohabitating in this space on a very intimate terms. Huh. All right. Now, when it comes to killing and eating humans, uh, there is one type of human that is clearly the best snack, the best meal, and that is uh, the child. Uh, children are, of course, smaller humans. Mm-hmm. They are uh, largely uh, stupider humans when it comes to uh, uh, surviving on their own in they a dangerous environment. They don't have as much experience. Yeah, they don't have as much experience. They, you know, they're not going to really be able to punch a bear in the nose. They're they're slower. They're easily distracted. Like, for instance, I took my son out on the Beltline today, which is this uh, like running, uh, walking, bicycling strip uh, here in Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, formerly a train track. Uh, you know, re- really nice environment. But it was hard to get him to walk. Uh, t- like ten feet without stopping to stick to poke sticks through the fence yeah. to try and pick up dog crap or to and, and then occasionally he would see somebody running and would run himself. <laughs> now there were no tigers or bears or coyotes or wolves or anything like that on the Beltline, but mm-hmm. if there were, they would have easily seen this is the kid uh, we're going to try and eat. Uh, these large adult runners, they, you know, they're too fast, they're too wary. Some of them are on bicycles. I'm not messing with that, but this guy. He is short, he is stubby, and he keeps stopping to mess with things. Could eat him up in a heartbeat. Like uh, I, I like to joke to my wife that if he were out in the wild, even like squirrels would say, "Hey, I could eat that guy. Maybe I should get a taste of him." <laughs> All of a sudden, you have like twenty squirrels marching towards your son. Exactly. Like, what's going I mean, on it's here? Just, you know, the the economic value of eating um, a toddler. Yeah. Is, is just it should be obvious to anything in the animal kingdom, and a number of predators do pick up on that. Yeah, and I think that's why we have so many fairy tales that are these cautionary tales, really for children, especially when it comes to wolves, right? Yeah, I mean, just think of the wolf in nursery stories uh, and in and in myths as well. But uh, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, you know, uh, she's just minding her own business, and this wolf is going to eat her in the woods. It also goes after her elderly uh, grandmother as well. Uh, it, and and uh, then there are other stories like this, the three pigs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it just goes on and on. We just have this this cultural idea of the wolf as this predator that's roaming out on the edges of our human world and is going to be eager to creep in. And steal our children or even eat us. I mean, look, look at some of the films we have, uh, out there in which the wolf plays a, a very nefarious role. Uh, there's the, uh, the Liam Neeson movie, The Grey, uh, about, uh, Liam Neeson punching a bunch of wolves as they, they try to eat him. So culturally, it is woven in our fabric. We are frightened of wolves. They are the boogeyman. So imagine you live in Reserve, New Mexico. Okay. Just imagine you're mm-hmm. here in New Mexico and your child is waiting for the bus. But instead of throwing rocks or playing chase, the children are huddled in wood and mesh cages <laughs> meant to keep them safe from any wayward wolves that happen by. 
This is just such a fantastic story. Uh, I mean, especially once you start getting the details. And uh, in, in, in this case, we got the details from uh, the article, Do Kid Cages Really Protect Children from Wolves by uh, Jeremy Berlin? And uh, he he, ends up, he talks to an expert on wolves. He uh, specifically he uh, talks uh, to Daniel uh, McNulty, a wildlife ecology professor at Utah State University. Uh, this is a guy who's been studying wolves in Yellowstone National Park for the past eighteen years. And he, and he asked him, said, "Wolves eating children at bus stops <laughs> is this really a threat?" And he yeah. says, "Of course, it's not a threat. Uh, like there are so few examples of wolves attacking humans in the wild, for starters." Yeah, he says a child in a rural area is more likely to be hurt or killed in an accident with an off-road all-terrain vehicle or in a, with an encounter with a feral dog or a hunting accident. And there are very few instances in North America of wolves hurting anyone, let alone children. And the reason why people are up in arms in this area is because in 1995, a smaller subspecies of the gray wolf called the Mexican wolf was reintroduced in the area. Yeah, it's a protected species. And so, on one hand, you have uh, you have governmental bodies saying, "Don't hurt the the wolves. They are they're endangered. They're protected. Leave them alone." But on the other hand, we have this primal or almost primal fear of the wolf. Yeah, we have certainly have experiences of wolves preying on livestock and beloved pets. And so you have you have this tug of war here, and also probably a little bit of uh, political manipulation as well, where people are saying, "Oh, well, if you're going to protect the wolf and uh-huh. we can't shoot the wolves, then I guess we'll have to put our children in shark cages at the bus stop." Exactly, because otherwise the wolves would just sweep in and just eat all of them every morning. Yeah, McNulty said that he thought that this was probably a publicity stunt. Uh, by people who felt like their rights were being infringed on upon the government, particularly since the EPA was uh, had something out there to have, actually have tighter uh, restrictions here on the Mexican wolf. So, again, the idea is that there may be some groups that are fueling this fear, which is sort of an ancient fear ingrained in us against wolves. Well, let me ask you this. You, you, have, you, have, you have a daughter. Can you imagine taking your daughter to a bus stop to, uh, to await uh, the school bus and, and telling her, listen, honey, everything's going to be okay today. Uh, however, we're going to have to put you in a cage as you wait for the bus because wolves may come for you and try to eat you. No, I can't. I can't imagine like putting her into what amounts as, as a chicken coop, really, if you look at these structures <laughs> and telling her that there's this, this fear that she should, you know, really be keyed into. I mean, can you imagine what that's doing to a kid's psyche? Yeah, that's it's just not healthy. I mean, and and also it 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 again it fosters this idea that the wolf is a threat that needs to be eradicated. Uh, when, when in reality, if you encounter wolves in the wild, it's generally going to be a very uh, a, a very calm situation. They're going to see you. They're going to take off because you're just not a prey animal to them. Yeah, McNulty says they don't have supernatural fo- uh, powers. They can't jump over mountain ranges. They can't bring down a moose with a single bite to the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, they are constrained by their morphology, right? So they're going to go after something that is small. They're going to go after a rabbit or something that is easy prey. They are generally frightened of humans. Yeah. So to sum it all up, yes, it's there's a small, small chance that wolves would prey on a human child, uh, but but generally it's not something to worry about. Certainly nothing to to worry about at the bus stop. Um, but of course, a child would be an irresistible meal to uh, to any number of other predators. Uh, interestingly enough, including the champ to the chimpanzee. 
which uh, I, I found uh, horrifying. Yeah, well, and I think that's because, you know, uh, when you think about chimps, you think of them as these playful creatures and uh you know, even when you hear accounts of them killing each other, it's disturbing. Yeah. But um, when, it's when they start eating other primates, which they do. Yes. Uh, or, or other monkeys, uh, that's, that's when it starts getting a little weird for the, the human, uh, observer. Uh, but certainly they eat a lot of meat. I, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, the, uh, the chimpanzee is only surpassed in its meat consumption by human beings, uh, when compared to other, uh, other, uh, uh species. So we can't, area. so we can't really judge, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we have, we get kind of weird about eating things that look too much like us, yeah. um, for the most part, but, uh, but they have no such qualms. And a lot of this is about context, right? So what sort of food sources are available? What else is going on in the ecosystem? And we're going to discuss a little bit more about this, some other, uh, species that we should really be more worried about when it comes to man-eating right after we take this break. All right, we are back. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Yes, uh, particularly lions and tigers. These are, uh, the big cats are among the best examples of, of man eaters that we can, re- that you can really focus in on. And particularly when you're looking at the situation of an animal turning man eater and try, and, and just trying to, uh, to figure out what is that, uh, what is happening at that pivotal moment when this animal changes from something that lives outside of, uh, the human scope, uh, to a creature that is preying, uh, exclusively on humans. Yeah. And before we talk about some of the circumstances that would drive man eating and lions, let's just discuss really quickly that the population of African lions is in decline while the human population, of course, is on the rise. You have to factor in the loss of habitat and human encroachment. And then you begin to see this picture emerging of how humans and lions are meeting far more than they ever did in history, and of course, attacks are on the rise. Yeah, now there's some uh, some very key examples of man-eating lions uh, throughout history, and all of this certainly stokes the fires of our fear and mm-hmm. our uh, and our fascination with the idea of the man-eating lion. But uh, particularly the, the 1898 uh, situation involving uh, two lions named Ghost and Darkness, mm-hmm. um, they unleash this harrowing string of attacks on uh, Ugandan railroad workers. Uh, and uh, if you look at the older accounts of the uh, the Savo lions, they were saying that the lions slew something like 135 African and Indian uh, railroad laborers, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes dragging them from their tents while they slept. And you know, it all ends up escalating and the and the hunters having to go out and in, in, in search of them. If you've ever seen the movie The Ghost in the Darkness, mm-hmm. that uh is a fictionalized account of this uh, situation. But uh here's the thing. The, these lions are currently um on view uh underneath the the St. Louis Gateway Arch. If you go to the Gateway Arch and you go into the museum underneath it, mm-hmm. you will see these lions and they are surprisingly small. Um, you see them and you, you, if you hear the story, you expect giant lions that are just dripping with human blood. And they're, they're a lot smaller specimens in real life. So are these vampire lions that are existing through the centuries? No, no, no. These are the actual lions uh, ah. that were killed and stuffed and wound up in St. Louis. Okay. And it turns out, by the way, that uh, these lions actually took the lives of 35 people, not, you know, 100 plus people. Uh, 35 still is nothing to sneeze at. 
Now, this isn't the only story. There are various other accounts, and uh, and you know, I could I could go into to listing each of them uh, account by account, but they all basically um, amount to the same thing. Suddenly, a lion or even a group of lions mm-hmm. begin preying on humans, and then they don't stop until those lions are themselves put down. Um, there are a number of reasons for why this happens. Uh, one of the reasons is it could be passed down behavior. Yes, and there's a study of the Savo lions actually. Uh, from the Chicago's Field Museum that discovered that generations of the same pride exhibited similar human eating tendencies. Hmm. So the same pride had a higher incidence of man eating. So that's one, uh, idea here. But of course, there's lots of different competing circumstances and reasons. Right. I mean, one of the big ones is altered habitat induced prey switching. Now, this is a situation, uh, that uh, that should make a lot of sense, especially in light of uh, of the reality of growing human populations and uh, and at times shrinking uh, prey populations in an area. Uh, what ends up happening is you have a, a lions and they've they've lived in this area for generations and generations and generations. They've always preyed exclusively on uh, this particular uh, population of animals, mm-hmm. and suddenly that prey population is affected by this human presence. Suddenly there's less for them to eat. What are they supposed to do? They're going to do whatever they have to do to survive there, so they end up switching their prey preference. They realize they can't uh, you know, get this traditional uh, you know, deer-like, uh, gazelle-like animal or whatever that they prey on. What are they going to turn to? Well, here are all these humans in their area. So they end up making the switch. And there may be additional things that end up um, affecting that switch. For instance, uh, what happens then if lions... Uh, these same lions who are trying to figure out what they're going to eat, uh, what kind of prey they're going to consist on, what happens when they come across the body of a dead human or uh, or, or even a, you know, a, a desiccated grave of some kind. And they end up trying the human flesh. Mm-hmm. It's just another uh, argument in their favor of, oh, well, these creatures seem to be uh, as delicious as anything else I could eat. And, uh, and then, then they seem to be everywhere. And then you end up with the initial, eventual situation where they actually prey on a human. And in that, they may learn, oh, well, they're not that difficult to kill either. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it really plays into the whole uh, survival game that we've talked about before. You mm-hmm. try to conserve as much energy as possible and get as much energy as possible, right? And right. so if if a human presents him or herself as easy prey, uh, either, you know, just something that you stumbled upon that's a, a dead body or just is a smaller human being that's easy to take down. Well, there you go. You can conserve your energy and get a quick meal out of it at the same time. And another situation with lions that can uh, lead to this manhunter button getting uh, you know ticked off in their brain is uh, is when you have an old or an injured lion. So it's very similar to the altered habitat-induced prey switching situation. Mm-hmm. It's like suddenly uh, they've gone from this life where they're, they're preying exclusively on, on this animal or this group of animals, and now they can't. Because they're getting old, maybe they can't uh, they can't run down their prey like they used to, or they're having uh, problems with their teeth. They can't uh, they can't necessarily kill and chew like they used to. Yeah, I mean, think about when you go to the dentist and mm-hmm. you have a tooth abscess or you have dental work done. You don't go home and eat like a chicken thigh. You probably eat some mac and cheese, right? Yeah. Well, we've talked about the advantages of human cooking before, and you know what a what a enormous uh, technological achievement that was for our species. One of the achievements there is that suddenly it means that if you don't have teeth to chew your food anymore, mm-hmm. that there is a way. You know, you can you can cook things down. Yeah, and, and, and in addition to that, you can also chop things up. And in doing so, 
bad teeth is not a death sentence anymore. Yeah, and so if you think about humans versus, say, zebras, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden humans on the menu look a lot more like mac and cheese to an animal with really bad teeth. You don't, We don't have tough hides to tear through. Right. So, you know, that's, that's another idea of where you have a circumstance where humans might be the better choice here, the other white meat. But, of course, there is not one overriding theory here about why lions in particular go after humans from time to time. Um, actually, history stuff has a really great discussion of the Savo lions. It's a December 16th, uh, 2013th episode. So if you guys want to learn more about that specific instance, check that out. Um, because there's no, there's, there's not really one reason that people can settle on for, for why this happens. Yeah. If, if anything, it seems like there are probably a few different, uh, a few different of these factors are playing in, uh, to, to any given manhunter situation. Uh, but it does seem to be the trend that once that, uh, once that, lo- once that little switch is flipped over in the brain, uh, they tend to go for the human flesh, but then, but then, part of that too uh, is that is that we have such a stigma about man eaters and such a fear yeah. of it, and then we have this idea in our head that oh, well, that 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 lion has become man eater; it must be put down. Uh, so you know that, that that the answer then is in kind of in the question there. Well, right now today, uh, there's actually a news item that in Pinor, India, there is a manhunt right now for a tigress. That is going on. This is a tigress who, who reportedly has taken nine human lives in the last 45 days. And so you have really this frenzy, uh, going on to, to take this one tiger down. Yeah, tigers are definitely another uh, big area of, uh, of, of where we see the man-eater uh, effect, uh, coming in, into practice. And, and generally speaking, the same reasons apply, yeah. but with the uh, added caveat that sometimes you have, uh, there is a theory that mistaken identity uh, plays a role as well. Uh, there have been tests that have shown that a tiger will stalk a group of people bending over to cut grass, and that possibly the angle of the person, uh, the, you know, the, the, the fact that they seem like they're smaller and more compact, uh, that it may mean that the tiger is misinterpreting what kind of animal they are. Uh, I see. Yeah. So the um, genes that I have that have like a little gazelle face... <laughs> on the butt, I should stop wearing those out in the wild. Well, no, well, I don't know if it has the face on it. Maybe you'd be okay because remember, uh, you, you know, you do yes. see people with the masks yeah. on the back of their head, uh, so that the tiger, uh, you know, doesn't think that it's uh, sneaking up on you. That's right, because the idea here is that uh, with a tiger, or we've talked about this with bears too, is that uh, certain types of bears that you don't want to appear as though you are overly excited or you are a prey that would be frightened. Mm-hmm. of this animal and start running and flailing about. And if you have this mask on, it makes it look as though you are not actually retreating from the animal. It's interesting that you mentioned fleeing because I've also read accounts uh, where you'll have uh, areas in India where they don't really have a problem with tigers attacking people mm-hmm. unless they're on bicycles. Something about the the speed with which the human mm-hmm. is moving uh, may click something off in the tiger's so head. They think, "Oh, well, that's that's prey fleeing from me. I should run it down." Well, that uh, just happens in my neighborhood with dogs. So. <laughs> now, um, uh, again, uh, think back to those reasons we listed for lions, and you can pretty much apply all of those to tigers as well. There's an estimated 1,700 tigers left in the wild in India. Meanwhile, the human population in India is uh, is over 1.237 billion people. So again, you have you have these wild tigers, and they're inevitably going to run into people. 
And uh, sometimes it's just going to it's going to basically be accident. What happens when when uh, when a tiger just happens across uh, a human? It might be an old tiger mm-hmm. that's uh, forced out of its uh, previous area, a young tiger that's off that's out in search of its uh, of an area to call its own. And and indeed, those are the two types of tigers that typically wind up in these violent altercations: the young tigers and the very old tigers. Yeah, and if you look at this current case in Bishnor, India, that you do see habitat loss playing into this idea that it is the mating season right now in the winter. And what happens is that you have older tigresses that are moving along the younger, uh, I think that when they turn three years old, uh, the younger female tigresses out of the pride and saying, go off on your own and create your own. So Mm -hmm. that's creating more stray tigers out there in the wilderness who are coming upon people. It's also worth pointing out that um, a tiger usually makes one large kill every week. And so uh, the the math here is that uh, since India has uh, 1,700 or so tigers, that's more than 85,000 kills in a year. But uh, we're not experiencing anywhere near that number of, uh, of, of deaths uh, among humans at the mm-hmm. hands of tigers. Uh, less than 85 people are killed or injured uh, accidentally or otherwise in a year by tigers uh, in India. So uh, many more times that uh, die from the snake bites, rabies. Uh, you name it. But again, the idea of an Anna of a predator preying on humans, mm-hmm. it's an idea that just resonates so strongly with us and, and just drives the fear. I mean, we just mentioned uh, this, this story out of India. Uh, and in, in there are many cases, you know, certain of our, some of our listeners are going to be more uh, tied in to news out of India uh, than, than other listeners. Mm-hmm. But I imagine for a lot of people, like that's going to be the only news you hear out of India this week is that there's a man-eating tiger on the loose. I mean, that's how far it resonates because that 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 is is uh, is scary and uh, and and sort of boggles your imagination and, and makes your 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 mind run wild no matter where you are in the world. No, of course, of course, that would seize your imagination yeah. and you would stay indoors. Um, in terms of the United States, the real problem is a dog, yes. a spider, mm-hmm. or some other insect. And according to CDC statistics, of the 1,989 Americans killed by animals between 1999 and 2008, most of those deaths are attributed to dogs, insects, and spiders. So again, you have to scale the things that are imaginary, those imaginary threats, with what is actually happening at the time um, out in the wild. Yeah. Now, it's it's uh, great that you mentioned dogs, because, of course, with, with dogs... And in, and in some of these cases, we might be talking about dogs that are a bit wild. But uh, for the most part, we're talking about the domestic dog and all the complications that come along with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could do a whole podcast on this, and we probably should, about what happens when we have animals that are no longer wild. They have become domesticated or they are kept in some sort of, uh, you know, uh, zoo-type habitat, mm-hmm. you know, totally reduced habitat, totally unnatural living situation. What does that do to the animal's mind, even if they are kept in, uh, in you know, in, in relatively comfortable care, uh, discounting, um, you know, abuse and, uh, and and other uh, you know harsh realities of domestication and uh, in, uh, animal imprisonment. Well, probably one of the best examples of this can be found in the Blackfish documentary, which talks about Tilikum, who is a killer whale, an orca, and um, and actually documents the three killings of humans by Tilikum. Yes. 
And it's worth, it's very important to note here that there has never been a confirmed case of an orca killing a human in the wild. You've had situations where sailors have fallen directly, uh, into, uh, into the orca pods mm-hmm. and, uh, they've emerged without it, you know, any harm. Um, and, uh, so, so the, so the idea that, uh, that they're, you know, killing people in captivity, that instantly raises some questions about, well, what is it about captivity well, that, that is uh, that is making them do this? The interesting thing about this, too, is that they're not eating them. So obviously they're not doing this as a source yes. of protein. Mm-hmm. They're doing this most likely, as particularly when you look at this case of tilicum, as a byproduct of zucosis. And if you look at Tilikum, he was an orca that was separated from his mother at a young age and then shipped off to Sealand in British Columbia to perform for audiences where he was kept in what amounted to a lightless, floating 20-by-28-foot 20 shed. And a shed that, again, had no light coming in. And we're talking about um, being kept in that shed for upwards of 14 hours overnight. Uh, in addition to that, because he hadn't been properly socialized, mm-hmm. and kind of because he was the low man on the totem pole, he was the uh, subject of a lot of aggressive acts by other orcas that he was either mating with or performing with. So even by the time that he was moved over to SeaWorld and given you know more um, room to be in and, and probably better um, you know living quarters. He had already began to exhibit signs of zucosis. Yeah, I mean, it basically comes down to the fact that uh, that in the orca you have an intelligent social creature, and if you take that intelligent social creature out of the wild and put it in an enclosed environment uh, that is that it's not even a slice of of its natural world, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to end up with mental stress. You're going to end up with aggression, and that's going to manifest itself at times in uh, potentially fatal uh, encounters with the human captives. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at this documentary, you get more information, more in-depth information about these three killings. And one of the killings was just one person who broke into the holding area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they found this guy naked and um, dead the following morning. So they're not entirely sure what happened. Um, but the other two killings happened with trainers. And in one of those instances, you, you can see the film footage on this, the trainer has not rewarded Tilikum for um, performing a certain trick because she just didn't see it. She was talking to the audience, uh-huh. and she assumed he hadn't done it, so she didn't reward him with the fish. So the idea is that that might have set off uh, her eventual death with him pull, him pulling her under sort of retribution for not realizing that, you know, he had done the trick. And when you think about zoocosis and you think about animals um, having this sort of psychosis and having that level of sensitivity, then that's their life. Those yeah. are their life. And that becomes maybe a matter of life or death to that orca. I mean, we don't know, obviously, and I don't mean to anthropomorphize here, but you can begin to see how something like this happens. Well, I mean, every, anyone who's a dog owner out there knows. I mean, what do you tell a, a child about about the dog? No matter how friendly the dog is, you don't touch the dog while it's eating. Mm-hmm. I mean, because because no matter how domesticated the species, it, it there is that basic principle of life. Food is the is the most mm-hmm. important thing, uh, along with uh, with mating and reproduction. There's a very uh, genetic mission, uh, um, you know, at at heart of every creature. And if you interfere with that. Uh, you potentially, uh, you know, set off a string of events. Yeah, it's very true. Now, let's just kind of shift a couple of degrees here. Actually, a lot of degrees. Yeah. <laughs> 
and talk about humans. And we're not going to go super into cannibalism here, but we're going to talk about this idea about whether or not humans could actually get a taste for human blood. Yeah, we, we mentioned at the beginning that there's a certain... I get the sense that with the man man eater idea that there is this uh, notion that oh humans are off the menu items and therefore we're the most delicious and that if anything were to get a taste of us then how could they resist eating us all the time uh there's actually an an interesting argument that 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 the, this this isn't the case with any animal out there mm-hmm. except humans of course humans complicate the situation as always because we're not just this uh this this creature out there uh you know living an un- unconscious existence uh in the wild uh we're very conscious we we have these layers of culture and language uh in which which just completely complicate any and everything we do and so you do have situations obviously where people turn to cannibalism uh a lot of the time it's just for simple economic reasons just like the the rest of the world a situation where cannibalism an act of cannibalism means survival in a bad situation. But then you have situations where people turn to cannibalism uh, due to, uh, well, for lack of a better word, uh, insane reasons. Yeah, in 2012, there were a spate of crimes that involved face-biting, dismemberment, and cannibalism. And in these cases, Karen Hyland, she is a therapist at Summit Malibu Treatment Center in California, said cannibalism often begins as a fantasy, which the person plays out in his or her head. But when that person gets a taste for real, she says, you know, like the real actual meat mm-hmm. of the human, she says, quote, the pleasure center of the brain becomes activated and large amounts of dopamine are released, similar to what happens when someone ingests a drug like cocaine. I gotta say, my right now, my eyebrow is dubiously <laughs> raised. Yeah, it's uh again. It I, I feel like it's important to to again realize that with humans, everything is is complicated because humans can have fantasies about doing something that they've sure. built up in their mind for you know a decade or more. They can they can just be totally enraptured by the by the idea of doing something. Uh, humans, uh, un, unlike. Uh, uh, you know, most of the animal world, we have uh, we have taboos. We have things that exist outside of what is accepted by our culture, and those things can become uh, attractive to varying degrees. So you got to take take that into account. And then, if you're going to eat human flesh, at, at its very basis, you're ingesting something. And if you ingest food, if you ingest, uh, uh, you know beef jerky or yeah. uh, the face of somebody that you uh, attacked on a on, on the freeway. There is going to be a biological response to that. Your body, you are, there is going to be, uh, uh, you are ingesting, uh, vitamins. Uh, there, you know, your body is going to react. You're going to, you're going to feel a certain amount of pleasure upon eating. I mean, that's just biology. And, yeah. and so you add that in with all these complicated layers of fantasy and, and taboo and, uh, and sexual desire and you're going to get some weird results. Well, so she's not calling out the habit loop as we had touched on with Charles Duhigg's research about how to make a habit, right? Right. But she is touching on one of the things that makes a habit, and that's a release of dopamine, right? And so Mm -hmm. that's the the reason why our brain says, me like, yeah, I want to do it again. But I just can't conceive of doing that one time, and all of a sudden you have this really robust neural pathway that's demanding human flesh. I think that, for me, is the the leap in logic that's a bit difficult. Everything else I sort of understand. I just don't know that that one time would be enough. Um, But she is equating it with cocaine and saying that, uh, you know, the cutting of cocaine 
is very similar in the sense of planning for uh, the killing and eating of someone. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's saying that it's the same sort of anticipation and, you know, this, the same sort of, uh, real hook that's in your brain about what's about to happen. I feel like she might be chewing more than she bites off. Oh, yes. Now, now I ran across another article that dealt with some of this, uh, titled A Beginner's Guide to Sexual Cannibalism by Dr. Mark D. Griffiths, PhD. And this oh, I have on, that on my bookshelf. Oh, well, this is on, uh, uh psychology uh, today. And they pointed, and, and I'm just going to read you this quote from it, uh, so that, so that the reference that Mark uh, Griffiths is making here, uh, you know, it isn't overstated. He says, Leslie Hensel, author of Cannibalism as a Sexual Disorder, says eating human flesh can cause an increase in levels of vitamin A and amino acids, which can cause a chemical effect on the blood and in the brain. This chemical reaction could possibly lead to the altered states that some cannibals have a, have claimed to have experienced. However, this theory has not been substantiated by scientific evidence. Well, there you go. Yeah. I gotta say. But again, I, you know, think to that time that you had like a really delicious hamburger or some sort of a treat that you normally don't allow yourself and how satisfying that food can be. It, it, it can't, food can be euphoric. Like a really good piece of, of sushi, a really, you know, particularly perfect grapefruit. There, it, you can feel a sense of euphoria with your food just on its own without layering in sexual fantasy and uh, cultural taboos. So, again, eating is a physical act that has an effect on the brain, mm-hmm. uh, even if you're not talking about cannibalism. I just don't, yeah, I just don't see human meat being a go-to comfort food. <laughs> I mean, maybe, and actually, if today's video game release is any indication, it's a possibility there's a, a game called Tasty Tasty Grandpa that just came out. Yeah, this is going to be uh, an iOS uh, 2D, quote, eat-em-up that you can play on your your phones mm-hmm. and your various gadgets. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll be available by the time this podcast goes live because live because it looks amazing. Uh, do a search for Tasty Tasty Grandpa and you can see the video clip. Basically, you start off as this, as this baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what do you do to survive? Well, you have to eat those who are older than you to level up yeah, and we're into talking, a different age group. <laughs> and we're talking very cartoon cannibalism here. Yeah. It's just whole, just to you know, eat whole with no blood or bones or anything gross like that. Yeah, the, the background is an Elizabethan theater carousel, so it's <laughs> nothing too, too morbid or anything. Um, but the older a user gets, the more younger people are out to get them. Hmm. So then you have to try to survive cannibalism huh. as well. Well, I feel like it's a perfect uh, metaphor for life, uh, especially if you're if you happen to be uh, in the media. Uh, so if you're doing a podcast, you start thinking, "Oh man, look at the look at the playing field. We have all these young people coming up, and there are still <laughs> old dudes out there that I want to take down and get their spot." You know. Well, as as far as exploring cannibalism through technology, I can't help but think about the singularity. Of course, again, when robots will be our overlords, and mm. I think. This is where I think cannibalisms and, and humans may finally meet, is I envision these arenas where humans are ushered in along with sort of like half droid, half animals, and, and made to try to consume each other. Whoa, so you're saying that when the when the robots take over, yes. they will initiate gladiatorial combat yes. between uh, captured humans mm-hmm. and cybernetic animals. 
something like that. Okay. And you, they, they have to eat each other. Well, of course, cybernetic animals. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. <laughs> I love the digestive <laughs> system, but this is what's in my mind going to happen. I love yeah. how we discuss bringing up Tasty Tasty Grandpa mm-hmm. uh, as a way to to ease out of the cannibalism discussion <laughs> into lighter territory <laughs> to close out the podcast. And you you managed to grab the wheel and pull it right back around to a post-apocalyptic uh, gladiatorial battle between humans and uh, cybernetic animals. Yeah, we I put us in the ditch, didn't yeah. I? But think about it, right? I mean, at that <laughs> point, at the singularity, we will be striving for meaning in our life, right? Because computers will be doing everything. So this provides meaning in a way, survival. Okay. I well, mean, I'm not advocating that this should well, happen. Well, you've, you've put the idea out there into the internet, which yeah. is kind of the mind of the our future machine masters. So when it, it does, when it, when and if it does happen, uh, I feel like uh, future generations can look back to Julie Douglas and say she's the one who told the robots that this is what would help us out in the end. Oh, my gosh. You're saying that when in the future I'm staring into the eyes and the jaws of a woolly mammoth hybrid jaguar and meeting my death that I should thank my past self. Yeah, you have chosen the form of the destructor. Putting yeah. that into the stream of robot consciousness. Okay, fair enough. So there you go, man-eaters, the idea of the man-eater, the reality of the man-eater, what uh, what may tip the scale in some cases for an animal and, and make it go after human prey, uh, either uh, you know just a little bit or exclusively. Yeah, a couple things for you guys to percolate on. And if you want to find out more information, more stuff that we're putting out there in the universe and uh, given to the robots... You can check out a little website we have. Yes, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. You will find all of our podcast episodes there, and I mean all of them, because uh, you will find an incomplete catalog of our episodes on iTunes and on SoundCloud and other places. Those are great places to, to check us out, but if you want everything, you have to come to our website. Uh, that's just how it is. Hey, you can also check out our blog posts there, our videos, links out to our various social media accounts. Uh, that includes, uh, for instance, our Facebook feed, our Twitter feed, our Tumblr feed, Google+. Uh, but uh, check it out. Uh, there's a, there's one in particular that you follow. We are probably doing something on it as well. At this very moment. At this very moment. Yeah. And you can also send us your thoughts via email. And you can do that at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 